This morning is October 9th, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is One Life Changed. This is kind of a call to action for our church. I want to share with you what my heart's vision is. Ironically, this will be a total repeat for Matthew and Cassidy. Now, why would this be a total repeat for Matthew and Cassidy? Well, God birthed this in my heart, and when I realized that He needed to add some people to our midst to help me pull it off, to help God's plan to succeed here, we needed the right workers, I went right to Baton Rouge and shared it with them. So everything that I'm sharing with you, I shared with our partners in ministry. This is what they heard, what they received, and what they locked arms to join with us. Now, why am I sharing that with you this morning? Because I want you to hear it. I want you to receive it. I want you to lock arms and join me in this vision. That's it. It's not because I don't think you guys are doing a good job. It's because this is important. People need to know what the vision of the church is. need to know where, what our goal is, what we're trying to do. So this morning is One Life Change. Turn with me to Acts 15. There are a lot of things that I preach. And, you know, sometimes we get very deep into the Word. Other times we focus on daily living, all of those things. All I can tell you about this is when I was praying about what to do with the church and, Lord, what, what do I need? How, what do I do? What do I share with Matt and Cass? Where, what do, what's my grounding? I turned to Acts 15. In Acts 15, starting with a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, we're going to start in the 36th verse. This is on page 1229 if you're in the Thompson chain. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement Sharp disagreement. You know, Luke was an eloquent writer. He had at his disposal several languages that he could use. And he chose to describe this disagreement as sharp. You know what the word is in Greek here for sharp? What it means? It means sharp. <laughs> it means absolutely sharp. There's no trickery in this. This is a historian who loved the Lord writing about two men of God who got into a sharp disagreement. That happens in the church. You know, I didn't end up in Houston, Texas because there were rose petals under my feet the entire way from Baton Rouge. A lot of things that motivated my life were thorns on the rose. That's, that's just how God moves us. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening and joining the churches. Sometimes events happen in our life, and we want to put a milestone right there with a negative marker on it. We want to carry around a scar within us. Paul could have forever been damaged from this, and so could Barnabas. They might never have been friends again, and everywhere they went could have talked to people with the idea of, you know, Paul was really... We got into a sharp disagreement. And it's all because I love John Mark. And Paul could have been on the other side of the aisle going, you know, we got into a sharp disagreement, Barnabas and I, and it's just because he wanted that quitter. You know? I mean, 
I just had in mind doing the work of the Lord. I just went... And both of them are so right in their own eyes. There are a lot of events in our lives that God used to direct us. And it does not matter at all who was right and who was wrong. The truth is, most of the time, both of you were right and both of you were wrong, if you look very honestly. I want to read you a quote from Benjamin Franklin. I thought this was interesting. Benjamin Franklin once said, The sentence which has most influenced my life is... Okay, In Benjamin Franklin's readings, the sentence that most influenced his life is, Some persons grumble because God placed thorns among roses. Why not thank God because He placed roses among thorns? I first read it when I was a mere lad, Benjamin Franklin said. Since that day, it has occupied a front room in my house and has given me an optimistic trend. Guys, there's every opportunity to see in our lives thorns. When the reality is, what God's called us to do is see roses. To the pure, the Bible says, all things are pure. So two people can look, they can grow up in the same house, and one hate their parents, hate their lives, hate everybody, and blame it on a childhood. And another can go, my God, look how God shaped me, formed me, and caused me to grow. Isn't this beautiful? You know, that is the way Christians are supposed to approach our lives. To the pure, all things are pure. So these guys got into a sharp disagreement. It looks like could be a problem. If you're standing there in this day watching what's happening, you look, you see Barnabas setting off on a missionary journey, and he's got a problem with him. What was the problem with John Mark? He had quit. He had quit. They faced a sorcerer, and John Mark got scared and went home. You're going to find out something. People throw other people away, but God never does. God will work with you. He'll work through you. He will cause you to grow and strengthen. And where Paul saw the weakness in John Mark, Barnabas saw potential. And they were both right. One saw weakness and the other saw potential. It's just a matter of perspective. They were both absolutely right. You know how I know John Mark was not a failure and a quitter? He wrote the book of Mark. I would say he did pretty good, wouldn't you? Have any of you written anything that has been a national bestseller for, oh, I don't know, the last 16, 17 centuries? Of course not. John Mark did pretty darn good. His book about Jesus has been read more than any other book on the planet. Isn't that interesting? It's a matter of perspective. So then Paul was wrong, right? Paul was the bad guy. No, not at all. Watch what happens. God loved Paul so much. Look what happens. 16, verse 1. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Now, what a beautiful thing. Who did God add in Paul's life that might have been an alternate for John Mark? Not Barnabas, but for John Mark. He added Timothy. Now, what was Paul's calling? What was his ministry supposed to be about? To the Gentiles. But he wrote in Romans first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew at heart and his ministry was for the Gentiles. So God added to him a disciple and a special disciple, one I want to talk to you about. It's what God told me He would add to us. This disciple had a unique background. His very life from childhood forward had been prepared for this work. Because his father was a Greek, he understood the Greek culture and could be accepted among the Greeks. Because his mother was a Jewess, and Jews during this time determined whether or not you were a Jew based on your mother, not your father. He could pass for a Jew as well. We're going to find out he knew the Scripture. 
But that's not even what was good. That is all good, but it's not what is really good. Watch what happens. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. My goodness. Now, you've read what Paul said about circumcision. He told the Galatian church, a church full of Gentiles who were under pressure to convert to a legalistic system of righteousness that was not valid. It's never what the Torah actually taught. It's what they interpreted from it. He said, hey, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you're cut off from Christ. So why on earth is he circumcising somebody named Timothy here, whose father was a Greek and mother was a Jew? Well, as a Jew, which Timothy was, he's a hybrid here, if you will, he had the option to participate in this, but he did not have the compulsion to. There's no penalty on Timothy to do this. If he doesn't do it, God won't be displeased with him. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. So why would he do it? God added to Paul's ministry a young man who had a cultural background that was uniquely suited for what they were going to face and better than that, was willing to shed his own blood to be wronged for the sake of others. He knew that some of the Jews they were trying to reach would never accept him if he wasn't circumcised, but they would if he was. He knew that it was not something required for salvation, not something that would give him a special merit badge, and yet Timothy was willing to be hurt to bleed, to be cut in a very sensitive place so that the gospel might find its home among Jews. Gentiles wouldn't have cared. So what on earth are we supposed to get out of that and why are we reading it? I came from a background where I wasn't real sure whether it was a thorn or a rose that compelled me to be here. But I knew God had spoken to me. We had an opportunity to look, to get hurt, to get bitter. But instead, what I saw God doing was giving me vision. I saw God telling me that He was going to equip me. And though I did not have close to me some of the people that I had always had, Barnabas was no longer there with me. He told me he would add the right people. So I went in search of a Silas and I went in search of a Timothy in my heart. And for several years I began praying and God began adding people. You know, Silas was a Roman citizen. We're going to see him added here in a minute. It's uniquely important because they're going to face things that only Timothy and Silas and Paul were uniquely suited for. And Luke, who was with him. I'm telling you this because as Christians called according to this church, there are times that you may not have to do something to receive the favor of God. You're not under penalty. You're now not saved because you didn't do this. But you may choose to go the extra mile because this ministry will do that and do it every time. There are a lot of things in my life that I do that I surely don't have to do. I do it for the benefit of the people around me that they might be on better ground. That's exactly the heart we're looking for. That you would look to others' interests instead of your own. In this church, you will have to be willing to die to your own desires, to lay down some of your rights and privileges so that somebody else will be benefited. It means at times Paul said you may have a sleepless night. You might be in danger of a wild animal. You might be shipwrecked on a journey. And friends, if you're not willing to do those things, you need to re-examine your life in Christ much less in this church. Because out of all the churches you could go to, somebody described this one as a Christian boot camp, and they were right. We're going to live the Word. You'll never be comfortable in this place if you don't live the Word. Never. promise you won't. It would be my job to make you uncomfortable. I want to read to you something that... Uh, 
missionary named David Livingstone said. Anybody know who David Livingstone is? In the 1800s, this guy was a medical missionary to Africa. He explored three-quarters of the continent and saw salvation beyond most people's wildest dreams. A missionary society was deeply impressed by the courageous devotion of David Livingstone, who worked single-handedly for God in Africa. The society wrote Livingstone, Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to send men to join you. Livingstone replied, If you have men who will only come if there's a good road, I don't want them. I want the men who will come if there's no road at all. Friends, that's my heart. If you're looking only to do the things in Christ that are blessings, go join the prosperity message. Go find a church where they will tell you you're blessed if everything's easy. That's not the message God's given me. The message God has given me is that there are times we will be chained and bound, so to speak, and that's when the praise really has to start. That's when the Christian really has to rise to the surface. You have to have the heart of Timothy if you're going to be a success in the kingdom. God told me He would add that to us, and I believe He is. Let me keep reading here. As they traveled, verse 4, from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Isn't this interesting? What decisions are they talking about? This is Acts 15. The decision was that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be saved. So Paul, in his ministry to the Gentiles, went around preaching the freedom that Gentiles had in Christ. You do not have to be circumcised to come into the kingdom, and yet he's carrying with him somebody that could have chosen either heritage and was circumcised not to be an offense to anybody. At the same time, Paul's preaching the message of freedom. He has somebody that gave up a freedom that others might get saved. You know, I teach you have a freedom to drink in here, and you do. You have a freedom to get drunk. That would be sin. I teach that freedom. But all of you know that we live in the South. We live in an area where people don't understand that freedom, and you might give up that freedom for the sake of somebody else. Well, that's an easy decision. You are all raised in an environment that taught you that that was the case. Some of the other decisions are not all that easy. When you have to give up the right to be right. When you've done nothing but serve somebody by keeping their kids, by taking care of them, by cutting their grass, by doing whatever it is you do, and they use you like a doormat. You just need to consider that Timothy's ministry. I'm getting to bleed a little bit that they might benefit. And it doesn't matter that they don't understand. I, you know, I run the risk telling you all the truth in here and you all might say, I don't want to sign up for that. <laughs> Well, that's okay. That's okay. I might as well be honest with you about where we're going and decide who's with us. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. As the gospel of freedom was preached, the church grew and was strengthened. Freedom does not point at John Mark and say you're a failure. Freedom does not point backwards and say Barnabas was wrong. Freedom is not judgmental and freedom does not condemn. You know what the message God's given us is? The message God's given us is don't make it difficult for people to come in the kingdom. Let my spirit get hold of them. Do whatever it takes to let my spirit work in their life and God will straighten them out. That's one of the messages God's given us. The power of a changing life is a testament to the power of God. So you won't see me stand up here and condemn people in our church that you don't think their life is right. So you think somebody's in sin. And you go, well, why didn't Eric say anything about that? Maybe I'm giving God a chance to do something about it. 
What if you're in sin and I'm giving you mercy? See, it's not mine to give. God's given me a lot of mercy in my life. All I'm doing is giving you what He's given me. This is not a ministry that's going to point at others and talk about how wrong they are, even if they're blatantly wrong. I can only do that if Jesus tells me to point it out. So far, what He's told me to do is teach the truth. Let the sheep discern error. If that makes people uncomfortable, that's okay. I just want God's will. So, if I'm not commenting on the best-selling books or the most famous preachers in here, if I'm not watching daily to see what the charismatic craziness is doing around us and telling you what I believe about it, it's because I don't care. It's not what God called me to do. It's not where our plane is headed. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is an important verse, friends. If you don't have this one marked, it's peculiar. It's peculiar in the Bible and you ought to mark it. Paul and his companions traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the Word in the province of Asia. What on earth do you mean? You've heard it said, and people say it all the time, and they'll quote it out of balance. They'll say, the Bible says, go ye into all the world. Jesus would have to tell you not to go. You should go. Well, you'll find out sometimes Jesus does say don't go. It really doesn't matter that the buildings are more affordable than Richmond. It really doesn't matter that further up Highway 6, it might be easier for us to minister. I have to do what Jesus told me to do, and all I know right now is Sugarland. It doesn't matter that this real estate's more expensive than anywhere else. It doesn't matter that there's already established churches on every corner. It doesn't matter. I have to do what Jesus told me to do. And here's something that's interesting. They wanted to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit kept them from it. It's not always about our desire. It's about doing what God wants you to do. Watch what else happens. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. In Christianity, and especially in churches, we look and we see what somebody on TV is doing. We look and we see what the other churches does. And if one church has got some business plan to get Christians in there, and they're signing contracts and doing all kinds of ridiculous things, or one's teaching the 12 steps or the 13 steps or the 96 renamed steps, I don't know, they all have these visions. And it's okay. But I can only go where Jesus tells me to go. I can only do what He tells me to do. They wanted to go to these places and they were kept by the Holy Spirit from doing it. I wanted to go to Hammond, Louisiana. Matthew and Cassidy and Jennifer and I, more than five years ago, sat down in a restaurant in Hammond, Louisiana. I went and talked to people about real estate. I took my Bible, the anointing oil, and everything else that I could find and went and began to stake out an area of Hammond, Louisiana. I said, you know what? I don't like Hammond, but it seems that I'm supposed to not be in Baton Rouge. There's a college here. I feel a drawing towards these college-age people. It's a good place to build a church. Jesus, let's see if we can go to Hammond. So I drove past Pumpkin Center and all of those, Albany, all of those places, and ended up in Hammond. And you know what? I felt an anointing. But the anointing is not, that's not the make-or-break issue. You know what? Sometimes you're going to feel an anointing in lots of places. I was shocked one time. I felt an anointing in a Catholic church and couldn't believe it. I carry the anointing with me. It shouldn't be surprised that I feel the anointing some places. God can minister to you in the darkest, deepest places. The fact that you feel an anointing on something doesn't mean that's God's approval. 
That's not the ultimate test. A.A. Allen was an alcoholic who was drunk while he was preaching and was anointed doing it. What does that mean? It means God's divine enablement was on him. Did that mean God's approval was on him and everything he was doing? Of course not. So I felt an anointing in Hammond. What did that mean? It meant God's going to do something there. It didn't mean he was going to do it with me. We sometimes go from church to church in charismatic Christianity with our notebooks and our tape recorders. Say, wow, I was in that service and that was anointed. That was good. I think God's calling me there because it was anointed. No, you're just excited because you felt the presence of God and it was different than what you felt last week. We can't be led by those things. We have to be led by the Spirit's direction in our life. Otherwise, we join the, the list of charismatic fruits, nuts, and flakes that are already out there. You know, the thing that I hate the worst, I mean the very worst about Pentecostal, charismatic, so-called Spirit-filled believers... If God speaks this to them one day and He speaks this to them another and they make God some kind of windshield wiper that changes His mind left and right daily whenever there's trouble. Well, God's called me to do this. Ooh, this kind of hurts. I think God's called me to do something else. There is no place for pansies in Christianity. And I'm not talking about the flowers. There is no place for men and women that have no backbone. We claim to be weak, but Jesus in us is strong. That means that at times you learn to stay the course. And when it's hard, you do it anyway and you rejoice because there's greater glory. Now some people are born knowing this and feeling this. And they use it in wrong ways. They stay the course in wicked things. They try to show their strength and determination in wicked things. I'm asking you to apply it to godly things. Gabriel, you'll need to be quiet. Sorry about that, friends. Okay, so the Spirit kept them. Verse 8. So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Before you turn that, or you can turn the page, I'll tell you about it, but think about this. Who had the dream, the vision? Paul. Now Luke is here. We know that because he's the writer. Timothy is here. And Silas is here. God showed one man the vision. And what does he say? We concluded God had sent us. They all wanted to go to Mysia, Mysia, and they couldn't. They all wanted to go to Asia, and they couldn't. Then one man got a vision and they corporately concluded that God had called all of them to go. Well, that's not such a foreign concept. People are used to a pastor saying, here's the direction we're going to go and then joining in that direction. But you know how much you love the Lord and how much you personally have heard from Him when you meet trouble along the way. It's fine for me to say, I believe we're supposed to go to Israel and for you to join me in that vision until we all buy tickets and then the U.S. State Department says, I don't think you should go right now. Does that change the fact that God told us to go? Said, but wisdom says, wait a minute, friends. You either have heard from God or you haven't heard from God. I'm not asking anybody to be persuaded by me about our church vision. I'm asking you to hear from God so that when trouble comes, you learn to stay the course. Not because Eric's right, or Eric's perfect, but because you believe God's anointing, God's divine enablement, is not on me, is on you to help fulfill this vision. See, Paul heard it, 
but they concluded that God had called them. That is an important distinction. Otherwise, what you find is as soon as the leader has gone in a direction that the sheep don't like, they begin to devour each other to talk about the pastor. More pastors are eaten after a Sunday service than fried chicken. You know, they don't like the person who sang. They don't like the way the pastor said. Then get in a different church or get right with God because one of the two has to happen. You cannot continue to sit in a church that does not have a vision and be destructive towards that pastor. You can't. Say, but wait a minute. I'm not sure God's called me to leave yet. Not everything's right with this uh, pastor. I understand waiting for God's direction. I understand trying to support a pastor that maybe y'all don't have exactly the same vision, but it's not totally contrary. I understand that. But there is no place for Christians that dig their heels in and say, where you go, I cannot follow, but I'm still going to be in your church. It, it, It can't work that way. Okay, I'm not saying there aren't peculiar circumstances out there. I've sat in churches where I didn't agree with every word. You never will. But I agreed with the general direction of the church. Follow me here. Paul saw a vision of who? A Macedonian man. Okay? Macedonian man. From Troas, we put to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace. <laughs> Samothrace. And the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi and then a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, excuse me, and began to speak to a woman, to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. I just want to clue you into something before we go too much further with this. Lydia is not a man. (laughs) That's not a big surprise, is it? God spoke to Paul in a dream, saw a man begging him, come over here, come over here, teach us, come over here. Now they've gotten to Macedonia. Has Paul met a man? See, the first time the vision doesn't look like it's being fulfilled, there are always those that will go, this is not what he said would happen looking for any kind of way to go, oh, the vision's not coming about, it's wrong, it's false. This is not a man. Incidentally, Luke finds a subtle way to tell you Lydia is rich. Lydia is really, really rich. Do you know how to know that? Dyer of purple cloth. This was one of the most valuable substances in the Roman world. And she dealt in this. This is a discreet way to say Lydia is really, really rich. You know what else? Yeah, she's got bling, Matt said. You know what else? She's a worshiper of God. Now, she's in a Macedonian city. Her name and the city she lives in leads you to believe that she's a Gentile. And yet, she's called a worshiper of God. And on what day did he meet her and where? On a Sabbath day at a place of prayer. That sounds like a synagogue to me. What was this Gentile doing in a synagogue? She loved the Lord. She fell in love with the Lord through Judaism. And now Paul's showing her a more complete way. See, the law is good. It's righteous and it's holy and it is spiritual. The thing that is unspiritual is the people. So I only say that to say, don't think of the Old Testament as bad or wrong. Not by any way, shape or means. Every Gentile who believed in the New Testament believed because they had been introduced to it through Judaism. Okay. The Lord opened her heart and she responded to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. 
If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Here's an important point that I hadn't intended to go into, but I have to. When I'm communicating to you the message God's given to me, and I'm telling you that it's got to be a message without condemnation. It's got to be a message about freedom. Do you know why Luke included this? Do you know why Luke says, if you consider me a believer, quoting Lydia, then come and stay in my home? Because up until this point, it was very hard for Jews to go stay in the house of a Gentile. Because the law that they had learned to love, that God had taught them about His righteous ways, said that if a Gentile eats unclean things and you touch that Gentile, you become unclean. And it was a revelation to the early church that if God calls the Gentile clean, He's clean. doesn't matter what He's been eating. So Lydia looks right at Paul and says, if you consider me a believer. In other words, if we really are equals according to your message of freedom, then come to my home. Friends, I will go anywhere. I'll associate with anyone that is interested in loving the Lord. And it does not matter how far off, how unclean everybody else thinks they are or what they're into. It's amazing what you find in people's homes. It really is. And a lot of the church world would be shocked. But if you looked in the church world's closets, you might find the same things. Even in this neighborhood, I find Christians, not Christians, I find people who should be worshipers of God that are not because they think that they just aren't good enough. And the reality is the things that they're ashamed of exist in the church probably in greater quantity. The church just lies about it. Okay. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us. That's a way Luke slips and lets you know they're all together all of the time here, the pronouns. Uh, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to uh, the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I always wondered, where is Luke? Says they grabbed Paul and Silas. Where is Timothy? You remember I said they had unique backgrounds? They were culturally set up from birth to be able to do what God called them to do. You say, well... My mommy didn't love my daddy and I lived with a, a foster family. And all. God worked within your background to build into you something for your calling. But that was all bad, sinful stuff. You don't know. They pulled off my toenail. It doesn't matter. Those are thorns and there is a rose there if you look for it. Timothy could have been so upset that he wasn't a fool Jew, that his family had not descended directly from the Levitical line. He could have been so mad about that. And yet, when these Gentile Romans are dragging the only ones that they were absolutely certain were Jews to jail, but let Luke the Gentile and Timothy the Gentile go, you might be excited about your unique background, huh? See, Timothy could pass for either one. He could be a Jew with the Jews and a Gentile with the Gentiles. His father was Greek. 
Whoa, whoa, hey, hey. Daddy's a Greek, guys. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's not in jail. I don't know. But I'm just telling you, God used their backgrounds in all kind of ways. Paul and Silas had something also that the others didn't have, and we'll get to that. By the way, they're dragged and into jail, and why? Because of something Paul did. What did Paul do? He cast a spirit out of somebody. So now, Paul and Paul alone saw a vision that said, go to Macedonia. A man telling him to Macedonia. He's met no men. Now, Paul and Paul alone took a step that has caused them to be thrown into jail. You be honest with me. If you went to church in a place where you had never received the vision, just the pastor had received it, and you thought he was a pretty cool guy, but now you were going to jail for his vision, you'd be looking for a new church, wouldn't you? Oh, uh, no, my name was never officially on the membership rolls. Yeah, I used to hang out there sometime, but that was just because I liked the music, Matthew. <laughs> We've got this mentality that if there's trouble ahead, if there's suffering, then you know this wasn't really for us because God wants us blessed. I don't think that's true. And what Jesus showed me about this ministry is He would add to us a certain kind of people. Watch what kind He adds. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Are you telling me that if you were Silas, there wouldn't be the slightest temptation to be angry with Paul? If you were... Timothy, standing on the outside. You might not be sitting back looking going, you know, I don't know if this is what I signed up for. If you're Luke writing this down, might you think that this guy's become some kind of weird cult leader and he was crazy? There's something they're all supposed to do though. They're all supposed to be examining the Word on a regular basis. They're all supposed to be fellowshipping with the Spirit to see what God's will is for their life. And God's will for your life does not change on the turning of a dime. Get this straight, Christians. God did not tell you on Monday to do something that on Tuesday God told you not to do. Okay? <laughs> Christians under duress hear from God to go different directions every minute of the day because they don't like their situation. The reason I've been teaching us about God being with you in trouble, about Him delivering you through trouble... It's because in charismatic Christianity, we have a real problem that the denominations don't have. If you don't believe you hear from God, you're just kind of stuck in your circumstances. And you're trusting God to deliver you or not deliver you. But those of us that believe God speaks and can speak every day, sometimes abuse that by saying, oh, God doesn't want me in this position anymore. He's called me to run in this direction. And then when they try and can't, oh, God spoke to me. Now, I know I said I was going east, but uh, God says go north now. And then they try and run in that direction and can't. Now God says go south. And we are the flakiest bunch of people you've ever met. It's a good thing that we don't write down every prophecy. Because if you did write down every prophecy, if you treated it like Scripture, you would see just how flawed most of it is. The truth is, most people speak out of their own imaginations. Most do. It's only a special anointing that happens where you really get the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the speaking out of your own imagination is a horrible thing. As long as it's unto encouragement, as long as it's unto exhortation, those things, I'm not speaking against prophecy. But how often have you heard the prophecy, 
Billy Bob, you're in sin. And God says, if you don't repent, you're going to be struck dead. How often have you heard the prophecy that said, the business transaction that you're going to make $20,000 tomorrow and tithe 15000 of it, God says, do not do. See, God speaks things that you wouldn't get any other way. He speaks things when there needs to be a strategic change in your life. That's not usually the kind of prophecies that you hear, though, is it? Now, I'm not downing prophecy. You know I prophesy more than anybody in this room. What I'm trying to tell you is we can't use hearing from God as a crutch not to do what God's already told us to do. If God said go to Africa and now you're being beaten and mistreated in Africa, that's not a time to say God sent me to Spain instead. You have to learn to stay the course. You remember the David Livingstone? I'm looking for men who don't care whether there's a paved road or not. They'll come if there's no road at all. Paul needed people with him that really didn't care about the circumstances. They cared about pleasing God. That's what we need. This church needs people to gravitate to it that love Jesus enough to put up with anything as long as it's God's will. I'm not asking you to put up with sin. I'm not asking you to put up with flesh or carnality. I'm asking you to join arms with me regardless of the circumstances. What happened to Paul and Silas when they got here? What did the magistrates do? They stripped them and beat them. You're going to find out something. When Christians are stripped and beaten, maybe not physically, but in a spiritual sense, it gives you the opportunity to see what is really in there. Because all of us wear kind of a facade around us. Our hair is fixed a certain way. We live in certain houses. We dress certain ways to project an image. And none of it's what's important. What is important is when you begin to get stripped away, when you get beaten away, we find out what is inside of you. So it's necessary that every Christian go through places in their life where you are stripped and beaten. What did He do next to them? He bound them in an inner cell in stocks and in chains. This was a blessing. You know why this was a blessing? If He hadn't bound them in a cell, they might have been tempted to leave. And here's the secret. God called them to be in this very place at this very time, even though there was a beating in it, even though there was a stripping in it, and even though it meant imprisonment. So how could God do that? I don't know. How could He send His Son into the world to die for us? Would Jesus beat His bride? Would He kill His Son? Jesus wouldn't call me to do that. He called every one of these apostles to give up their life. He said, not John. Oh yeah, they tried to kill John three times. They just didn't succeed. Sometimes you'll be in a place where you feel like you are being stripped away and poured out and nobody cares. There's a temptation for Paul and Silas at this point. Where's Timothy? Where's Luke? Where are the brothers? Nobody knows we're in here and nobody cares. They could have a serious case of the molly grubs. They could be very upset. God caused them to be stripped and beaten. It wasn't godly that that happened. He Sinful men did it, but watch what happens out of it. Talk about thorns or roses. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Why chain them? Why bind them? Why would God allow this? Why be stripped and beaten? If you were a prisoner in the cell next to Paul, and he had been stripped, and he had been beaten, and now he was in stocks and in chains, what would you expect to hear? Crying, whining, grumbling, backbiting, anger, cursing. That's what you would expect to hear. But what did they hear? They were singing praises. This church needs people that will be chained to their calling. 
that will consider themselves in stocks in the inner cell and will not run. Won't run the other way because it's not popular. Won't run the other way because it's hard. Won't run the other way because you feel like you're being stripped and beaten. It is part of the calling. So you don't find acceptance with your friends at the social club. Neither did Jesus. Don't you think that there's a temptation in me? I could go apply for a job at a denominational church. All I'd have to do is enroll in a seminary and I promise I would be accepted. They wanted me after I'd only been saved, been saved a week. It's always a temptation to take the easier road. But it's not God's road. In fact, Asia needed the Gospel. And He didn't send them there. Mysnia needed the Gospel. And He didn't send them there. Instead, He sent them to a place to be stripped and beaten and chained. So what kind of God is that? A kind that cares an awful lot about a Macedonian man who's begging for a way to be saved. You gave up your life for the Gospel. That means if we're doing a clothing drive and it's hard, and it's harder than you thought it would be, and you would like to quit because the people around you are not happy, you need to learn to sing praises. That means if you've committed to be somewhere, you be there because others are counting on you. That means that you are very well aware that what you're doing in your life is affecting other people, even if you can't see it. See, there's a problem with being in chains and stocks. Imagine yourself, your hands and feet are in stocks, right? You can only see one direction. I bet they were facing the wall. They couldn't see that the prisoners were listening. God does not always show you the fruit of your effort. He just requires you to work. Matthew and Cassidy planted a garden yesterday. They redid their yard, and I'm sure it looks beautiful right now, but not half as beautiful as it will be in the months to come. God does not always show you the fruit of your efforts right away. Sometimes all you can see is that you've been stripped and beaten and chained. And you know what? It doesn't look like a lot of fun. I'm so happy when a new couple comes in here. I've been enriched by each one of your lives. Each one. Because to me, it was like a seed that was breaking the, the earth. I could see growth for the first time. You say, well, Eric, are you interested in numbers? No, that's not it. I'm just telling you I could see some success for the stripping and beating and chaining that I've taken. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm just trying to teach you from the Word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all of the prisoners' doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. Hold your finger on verse 28. I want to talk to you about that. So you're singing praises and you feel the earth shake and you think, all right, God has come to set me free. God has seen my plight. He's seen my misery and I am out of here. Isn't that what the church is looking for today? Isn't that what the books are written about? They're looking to leave this stinking world behind. To hell with it, I'm going heavenly, right? Isn't that the whole cry of the Hellenistic shallow church? Sure it is. If you were Paul and you were Silas, what would you do? Oh, wow, the doors came open. Let's get the H-E-double-L out of here because it's been no fun. But God had raised up some men that were aware of His Spirit. They knew they were called here. When the doors opened, they didn't run. 
Why? Well, let's see what God has for him. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. There was a jailer who was responsible for them, who had been in the service of the men who mistreated them. But Paul was concerned for him. Why was Paul concerned for this jailer? Because Paul had had a vision. And it wasn't of a Macedonian woman. It wasn't of somebody in Mysnia. It was not of somebody in Asia. It was of a Macedonian man saying, come over here, show us the way to be saved. And Paul looked up and for the first time, he saw a Macedonian man with a sentence of death in his heart. He was about to kill himself because he had failed in his job. And Paul speaks to him and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Watch what happens. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I bet at that very moment, Paul had a flashback to the vision that he saw. Who could have ever guessed that the way that God would have gotten them to the jailer was not that they would go play golf together. It was not that they'd meet in the marketplace and go to lunch and have wonderful stories about their adventures. The way God would have gotten Paul to that Macedonian man was by joining with people that were willing to suffer, by being stripped, beaten, chained in an inner cell, so that prisoners that had the chance for freedom would not take their freedom except that the jailer's life be spared. What a unique group of people. What a high calling in Christ. They must have been close to Jesus. That's what I'm asking for from you. So you're free in America to go anywhere you want to go. So you're free to sit at home and watch TV instead of doing something that benefits somebody else. So God has given you so much freedom that you can do anything you want. I'm asking you to look to other people's interests. I'm asking you to look to the guy that maybe was going to mistreat you but has a sentence of death in his heart and find a way to bring him the freedom that you now have. I'm asking to, for God to give us a group of people that will shed their blood, that others might be saved, that have the kind of heart that says, you first and then me, and not really care whether you get to go. Some people look and they only see thorns. I'm looking for people that can find roses among the thorns. Looking for people that can sing praises in the stocks. That's really the heart of what I'm saying. Is can you sing praises while you're in the stocks? If you don't remember anything else, I'm going to teach you a bunch else today. But if you don't remember anything else, remember that what God not only wants of you, but requires of you, is to sing praises in the stocks. Bob Dylan had a few years in Christianity. He now looks back and says they were the worst years of his life. That's very sad. But he sang a song called Bloom Where You Are Planted. God can use you where you are. Great joy comes to the desert if she bears a single flower. That is so profound. Quit whining about your circumstances. Look at your circumstances as an opportunity to praise God in the stocks, in the chains. You say, but I've been stripped. I've been beaten. There's no dignity in what I do. Good. It would be easier for people to see Jesus in it. Good. Praise God for your low circumstances. It will be easier for people to see the King. Praise God for it. If you were in a situation of blessing, honor, and dignity, they might not see the King. Praise God for it. Look for the Macedonian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. 
Why title a message One Life Changed? Why create a website called One Life Changed? Why have a ministry called Life Changing Ministries? Because I believe that when you find the one jailer, the one person with the sentence of death in his heart, and he gets liberated, it'll change his life and never stop with the one. Paul hadn't even met the family. He hadn't even met the family and he says they'll be saved. How is that possible? He'd seen in his vision the effect of the one man being saved and what it would do. It's the only way you could explain that. Paul had a vision in the night of a Macedonian saying, come over here, show me the way for salvation. He's gotten there and he's seen it. And the man's been born again and he has no doubt that the salvation will spread to his family. I have no doubt that when Diana's life was changed, it would radiate outwards. I had no doubt that when Mandy's life was changed, it would radiate outward. I have no doubt that my father's life being changed will radiate outward. I have no doubt that each one of you makes a difference. You may doubt it, but God doesn't. Barnabas, I love the guy. He looked at John Mark. Other people saw a failure. John, and Barnabas saw potential. You need to look in the mirror and see potential. Think about this with influence. Your influence, your walk, your calling... Is like your shadow. It may not always fall where you want it. Therefore, you need to be especially careful to see that whatever it falls on, it will have a good effect. You may not be able to control the shadow, but you can control the one who casts the shadow. Make your influence count for God and do not be deceived. Others are being influenced by your example right now. Everywhere you go, you cast a shadow. Your one life touches everybody that is around you. The Bible describes you like yeast. And a funny thing about yeast. Sometimes He said it was the yeast of the Pharisees and a bad thing. Other times He said it was the yeast of the kingdom of God and it was spreading through the whole loaf. You get to decide what kind of shadow you want to cast. I want to cast the best one possible. And you know how you do that? You get in the darkest of circumstances and you let the light of God shine on you. That's how you do that. That's what this ministry is about. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is on page 315 in the Thompson chain. Say, well, godly Eric, this is not a very attractive picture. Do you remember what Paul's calling was? Do you remember what Jesus told him on the road? He said, hey, buddy, you're going to be blessed beyond belief. You're going to be like a king. Is that what he told him? Matt sang about his testimony. In that testimony, what did you hear? You heard about Paul being stoned at Lystra and Derby, but having to get up and go because his work wasn't done. The man was stoned to death. And the disciples got around him and prayed because they knew he still had work to do and he got up and did it. You heard the heart of a man that while the feet were coming, he could hear those that were coming to behead him and his heart was where there is no suffering, there can be no glory. What an awesome guy, right? I'm looking for Christians, Jesus is looking for Christians that realize that you go through both suffering and glory to bring the fight to the enemy. In 1 Samuel, we read about a story. This is in your Bible. It probably has above it, Jonathan attacks the Philistines, which is a noteworthy point. Jonathan attacks the Philistines. I just remember I said that, right? Jonathan attacks the Philistines. 
Look at uh, verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. There's a whole message there, but we're going to skip it. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother. Funny thing about Ichabod, just so that you'll know for your Bible trivia games, Ichabod means when the glory of the Lord departs. (laughs) How'd you like to be named Ichabod? (laughs) He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. I'm sorry, I should have started reading up a little earlier. What's happened is Jonathan has looked out and he's seen the Philistines and he's decided that he might want to go fight. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozus. This is on page 313. It's 1 Samuel 14. And we are in verse 4, beginning almost in 5. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One called Bozus and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash. The other toward the south where Gibeah was. Jonathan said to the young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that is in your heart and in your mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Saul is sitting under a tree. The king of Israel has one of the only iron swords in Israel in this day. He has 600 men with him. And you know what Jonathan's doing? He's looking off in the distance going, wow, there are Philistines out there and we're sitting under this tree. He said, everybody's sitting around under this tree eating pomegranates. We've got one of the only iron swords in Israel. They're all scared. wonder what the Philistines are doing. And he looks off in the distance and he sees the Philistines. And he starts thinking, perhaps I could go fight with the Philistines. He is looking for the opportunity to do something for God. But as he looks, he sees a pass. And the pass takes him between two things the whole time. Cliffs on the right and the left. And you know what they are? They're Bozus and Sina. Bozus means the shining glory. Boy, well, if that's all that awaits me out there, I'm looking forward to it. If all I have to do to get to those Philistines is the shining glory, then here I am, Lord. God's man of power for the hour. I'm here. The problem is on the other side of the pass, the one that he also has to go through, is Sina, which means thorn bushes. Some see thorns and some see roses. They're both there. They're both always there. There's not a thing that could be done for God, not at any time ever, that does not involve both suffering and glory. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. He knew what it would produce. I'm not suggesting that you enjoy being beaten. I'm not suggesting that you would like to be stripped or chained. I'm suggesting that you lay our light and momentary troubles aside as not worth comparing with the glory of God that will be revealed. Jonathan was looking and he said, nobody can deliver them out of our hands if the Lord's with us. One guy against thousands. You know, the title said Jonathan attacks the Philistines. But you're going to find out Jonathan was not alone. There is in every real ministry, 
in every group of people that are called by God, there are people that work behind the scenes and are nameless. The linemen, so to speak. Everybody knows quarterbacks on football teams. Everybody knows the people in the skill positions. How many of you can name ten linemen? Matt can. He was a lineman. I'm talking about the attitude that is not only willing to suffer and bleed for the vision that God's given a group of people, but to be able to work without people needing to know who you are. That is so important. You know, ministries get in trouble when they put their names on the sign. They just do. I'm not telling you it's wrong. There may be a day where our church sign says Pastor Matthew Piro or Pastor Eric Stevens. You might say that. But when your name gets bigger than Jesus' name, and I'm not saying on a sign, I'm just saying, figuratively speaking, there is a problem. In Christianity, you have to be willing to work without your name being known. There's an old song that says, I rejoice because the angels know how to sign my name. I can rejoice if nobody knows who I am, if I have a backpack ministry in a garage for Jesus. I can rejoice because God is well aware of who I am. On each side of the path Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called glory and the other was called suffering. One cliff stood north towards Michmash, the other south towards Gibeah. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps he hadn't even heard from God. He's just looking for the opportunity to do something for God. He's trusting that God will speak and say, don't go if he's not supposed to. But he's looking to do something for God. So often we're reluctant. So often what we're looking to do is sit on our salvation on the couch and watch TV. We need to be looking to do something for God. And you say, well, it can be a good idea, not God's. That's right. And you need to trust Him to tell you if it's not a good idea. But your first inclination should be to act, not to be inactive. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. The armor-bearer replied, do all that you have in mind. His armor-bearer said, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. I'd intended to read you something about this heart and soul. And I'm running out of time, so I don't want to. But in 1986, there was an investigative article. And the paper that it was published in was the U.S. News and World Report. And it was about this secret group of snipers that were within the Marine Corps. And they found out that they would have these guys trained for eight weeks, 16 hours a day. And that at times, they would be sent out into marsh-like areas and if the instructors could find them, they were failed. So the instructors with the superior knowledge sent out the students, and if the instructor was able to discover the position of the student, they failed. Sometimes their pace was so slow as to not be discovered when getting into a position to be able to fire that it was said that they moved less than an inch in an hour. They creeped so slowly, deliberately towards their target so as not to be picked off or failed by the enemy, that it was less than an inch an hour. And the whole point, the premise of the article, was a quote from the instructor. And the quote was this, No one ever gets out of here or graduates from this place without a singleness of heart. In other words, it was not possible to succeed without being really, really determined. You know what the problem with most Christians are? Are 
intentions never become intense. We'd like to do it. Yeah, it'd be great. Love to see thousands saved. But it never becomes the kind of intensity that compels you to get off of your rear end. Oh yeah, I want to do things for God. It's great. But I'm going to sit at home. I'm never going to risk anything. You go to the same coffee shop, the same place to work out, the same gas station, but never took the time to learn the person's name, to get involved with people's lives because there was risk in it. They might not like you. It might take time out of your day. It might involve you in a conversation that you'd rather not have. We need our intentions to become intense. We need to join with the Jonathans of this world that are looking for the opportunity to do God's will and say, I'm with you, heart and soul. You can have all of me. I'm at your disposal. And the headline in the newspaper doesn't even name, does not even name the armor bearer. Jonathan gets credit for this. But the armor-bearer was there. There's a place for armor-bearers in today's ministry. say, Eric, why are you telling us this? Because I need armor-bearers. I need people who would join with me heart and soul and say, whatever you have in mind to do, let's pray and see if God will anoint it. Let's do it. I believe God's gathered that here. But we we need to stir it. This weekend I had planned some things that were not very well planned. But they weren't planned for me. I already know this message. I already know the things that I know. Truthfully, I enjoy sitting drinking coffee with Piro as much as anybody else here. I'm perfectly content to do that. But I had things planned in mind for you so that you might join with me, so that you might learn how to go with me to fight the enemy. And I got the impression that I was dragging rather than leading. Now, that's not to shame anybody. There are a lot of times in my life Jesus has had to drag me on roller skates. But what I'm trying to say is we need to progress to a point where we set our goal on a vision and cannot be dissuaded. Where you don't have to be encouraged to do something that is in your interest in Jesus to do because it causes you to lose sleep or causes you to be uncomfortable. Everything that Jesus ever calls you to do will cause you to lose sleep, be uncomfortable, or in some ways be uncomfortable. Everything. It is the hardest thing in the world when Jesus speaks to you and you're sitting in a car to go speak to a stranger to do it. It is the hardest thing you could ever do. Walk up to somebody that you've never met and say, hey, I believe the Lord just spoke to me and told me He cares very much about you. I don't know why this is happening except that He said that you were wounded and He desires to heal you. You tell me that that's an easy thing for you to do. Well, if you can't do without a few of the comforts of your home on a Saturday night to learn how to do that, something's wrong. That's not correction, guys. This is We all need to group together. We need to learn to lock our arms and say, come hell or high water, I'm doing what Jesus called me to do. This started as a message that I gave Matthew and Cassidy to join us in ministry taken some time for us all to even learn how to lock arms. What are Cassidy's strengths? What are Jennifer's strengths? What are Matthew's? What are Eric's? How do we even work together? At times, if we were a swimming team, it looked like half of us were drowning the other half, all of us just trying to swim. That's all normal. There's a storming process before there's a forming process. But you have to be willing to endure it. And you know what? starting to work right. And now I'm sharing the message with you because I want it to work right. 
I don't. My, I had an experience in high school football where the coach came in and said, "Hey, we're losing. <laughs> I'd like to win." He said, "If you were hanging off of a cliff, hanging by a rope, and you needed somebody to hold the rope, who would you want it to be?" And people named this one or that one. Then some time went by and he finished his game plan and coach was never an articulate guy. Truthfully, I never thought he was very smart, but he was a good coach. And I loved him because he was a leader to me. He said, guys, you remember the story about the rope? And we all said, yeah. He goes, by the way, when we get to the point where it wouldn't matter who you named, you'd take anybody on the team, not because they're big or strong or anything else, but you didn't care who was holding the rope. You knew they wouldn't let it go because you were on the other end. He said, then we've learned to form a team. And he's right. He's right. When we have gathered together, where it doesn't matter whether it's Eric and Diana doing it, or it's Eric and Mandy, or it's David and Eric, or it's Matthew and Brad, or Bobby and Steve, when you're certain there'll be success because one won't quit on the other, it is empowering. When you don't have to look to your left or right to see whether your friends are there, you're confident they're there, it is empowering. God added those people to Paul and He told me He would add those people to our ministry. And I believe it's you. I believe it's you. I've been saying that we're in a stage where God is forming the core before the crowd gets here. We need to form the inner circle. Everybody would like to be a part. Nobody wants to be out of the inner circle. Everybody wants the benefits of the inner circle. But look honestly at your lives, at the missed opportunities that have been there in the past, and you will find that it's because you did not sacrifice when others did. That's how you find yourself outside of the mainstream of what God's doing. They were willing to sacrifice when you weren't. By the way, this armor bearer and Jonathan struck down an entire garrison of Philistines. You know what it said? It said that Jonathan would strike them and the armor bearer would put the sword to him. Or the armor bearer would strike them and Jonathan would put the sword to him. The two worked in tandem. You know why? God called them to. Even though Jonathan's the name in the headline, he couldn't do it by himself. I need armor bearers. Can't do it by myself. You guys are supposed to be the evangelistic force in the church. You know how you do it? You cast the shadow that God gave you everywhere you go. You're aware that it happens. You're looking for a way you can be effective for the Lord, even at personal cost. That means that you learn to correct your language because others are listening. That means that you do things with the intention of being a good witness for Jesus. Not holding yourself up as perfect, but doing your very best to live a lifestyle that God can be proud of and can use. You know what's the hardest part of that? That means that when you fall on your face and you blow it, you're willing to suffer the loss of pride and go look at those that are watching you and say, hey, I blew it and I needed God to forgive me and will you forgive me? Even if they're outside the church. Even if they look at you and think you're crazy because they have no idea what you're talking about. You'll find out God will use that. People lose sleep. They lose sleep at night when you go and repent for something they don't think is a sin because it makes them examine their own life. <laughs> There's one more scripture I want to share with you and then we're going to quit. Uh, turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 23. I want to read you something. Another missionary. I've been reading about missionaries a little bit lately. His name was Al Maxi. And he was a missionary who told a story of a man in his church. He said, There is a brother in Christ in Nigeria who is badly deformed. His legs are withered, unable to walk, 
or afford transportation. He crawls to worship on his hands and knees to make the worship services. In order to bring his Bible, he either balances it on his neck or on his back or pushes it on the ground in front of him. What would we say to Jesus in the face of that testimony about why you did not make the last appointed destiny that you had? Lord, I was tired. Lord, you know, work's been hard lately. Lord, you know, I wanted to see that game so bad. I'm not talking about going to church. That's the least of what I'm talking about. There are Christians in this world that would crawl on their hands and knees to do God's will. You've got all of your limbs. You've got cars. Most of you have nice houses and the means to do almost anything you want. When's the last time you really had to suffer to do anything for Jesus? There are Christians around the world giving their lives for this gospel. That is compelling to me. It's not condemning. I don't want to go hang myself after hearing that. It's compelling. It makes me want to do something for Jesus. It makes me not care whether I have to bleed a little bit in the process. I just want to do something for Jesus. When the church as a whole develops that attitude, it's an amazing thing happens. When your intentions become intense, all of a sudden opportunities begin to arise. You'll see opportunities where you hadn't before. You looked before and said, I'd like to do that, but the mountain's too high. Now all of a sudden you could care less. You just see the opportunity. That's what I'm looking for. Let me read you this Scripture. Verse 8 on page 366 in your Thompson chain, then we're going to close. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, uh, the Tachamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he had killed and won a counter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines gathered at the Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. You may never have known who Eleazar was. You knew about David and his great battles. The kids in Israel saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. There were no songs about Eleazar. In fact, the only Eleazar most people can name is Eleazar, the son of our chief steward of Abraham. You may never have known this guy, but you know what his lasting testimony is? When everybody else ran, he didn't. And when his hand grew tired, he didn't stop. It just froze to his weapon. I'm looking for, God is looking for, men that won't run, women that won't run, no matter how difficult this becomes, no matter how much it requires you to die to self. And when you're tired, instead of quitting... You just cling to the sword that is the Word of God and you do what it tells you to do despite the consequences. I believe you are those people. I believe it with all of my heart or I would not waste my time this morning. I could just serve coffee and donuts and you'd probably come back next Sunday. I'm telling you what the heart of the ministry is so that you can catch it. Not be condemned by it. Be compelled by it. You say, well, I don't know what to do. Just have the desire to do something And you know what? Opportunity will present itself. In this ministry, there will never be a time where we name somebody 
something in the hopes that they will become that. That's not how that works. You will never be named a youth minister because we hope to see you being a youth minister. You will never be named a teacher, named anything else, because I believe the function determines the title. When we see you being a minister to the youth, we consider you a youth minister. When we see you teaching, we consider you a teacher. When we see you pastoring, we consider you a pastor. Action comes before the title. You'll never get any of those things if you are not willing to go through both Sina and Boses because they both are along the path. There are moments of glory, but there will always be thorns. You have to figure out how to see the roses in spite of the thorns. If all you look around and see is insecurity and failure, you don't have the picture of Jesus you need to see. The reason somebody in Nigeria will crawl to church pushing his Bible with his nose is because he believes it's worth it. I need you to believe that it's worth it. Very encouraging thing happened. Somebody told me about the men's retreat and their job and the trouble that they were going to have with their job. They said, well, jobs come and go. What you're teaching will last forever. That is the right attitude. That is the right attitude. That was very encouraging and I'm thankful for it. It's not enough for it to be words only though. The church has to take the attitude that this is worthwhile, that it's worth staking your life on. Yeah. You could take this message and make it something weird and cryptic. You could say Eric's trying to teach that you're supposed to live in burlap sacks and not have any fun. I have found that the most joyous moments in my life came finding joy in the midst of suffering because God was right there with me. The reason I taught you Psalm 91 last week was so that you would see that it's when a thousand are falling at your left. It's when 10,000 are falling at your right. It's when the plague is at midday and the pestilence is stalking you in darkness that God is with you, there to protect you and save you. That's when you feel Him the most. You just need to be willing to do whatever it takes to get His will done. Do whatever it takes to achieve the calling on your life. The calling is not something that is far off for tomorrow. The calling is today. It's right now. It's what you're doing right now. Your career in Jesus began the moment that you were baptized. What's your resume show thus far?